It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. There's a subject that Whitney and I are deeply, deeply passionate about. Do you want to guess what it is? That'd be funny. Like, go ahead, listener, guess which one we're going to cover today. We have talked about the comparison trap at length in various episodes here on This Might Get Uncomfortable. And generally, the framework that we observe with the comparison trap is that oneself or people in your life will compare your life circumstances to someone that, quote, has it better than you. That's generally kind of the framework of comparison is making ourselves or believing that we are less than someone, less worthy, less lovable, less successful, less impactful based on other people's accomplishments, their material gains, whatever it might be. That's typically the framework of the comparison trap. But one thing I was talking to Whitney to prior to recording that I've noticed come up a lot with people in my life and also generally on on social media is I don't even know if there's a term for it Whitney I don't know if it's the reverse comparison trap I haven't actually talked to you about this or or anyone and so I don't know what the term would be but I think there's an aspect of comparison that is opposite to what we generally frame it as which is my life sucks because so and so has it better than me I wish I was like them in human beings desire I think to I don't know if it's consolation or comfort or trying to get someone out of a funk per se. I've noticed there's this mutated, and again, I'll call it a reverse comparison trap until maybe we get a better term for it here, Whitney, talking about it in real time. But it's the idea that when you're, you're down on yourself, you're depressed, you're anxious, you're bemoaning your life, you feel like shit about yourself, that certain people's response to that is, oh, well, you know, but you could have it so much worse. You know, your your family could have died of COVID. This one guy I read about in the media, you know, got into a car accident, lost his legs. This person over here just had to put their dog down, da 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 da. We could give so many innumerable examples of this reverse comparison trap, wherein they're comparing your life to people that quote have it worse than you. The original version is what about people that have it quote better than you? But this is, I think, an attempt. I don't know what it's an attempt at, to make you feel better about your life circumstances because people have it so much worse than you. But one thing I've noticed, Wit, is it never ends up working for me. Whenever people bring that up of, what about blah, 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 look how horrible their life is, I don't end up feeling better about my life as a result of that. I actually feel a sense of, I don't know if it, it's not, I don't know if it's shame per se, but it's like, why are you comparing my depression, my anxiety, my pain? To someone who has more pain, more depression, who, who's lost more than I have, I think this is a very strange thing. And I notice that it happens a lot with people, not just with certain people in my life, but it seems to be kind of an, an unconscious response in certain people with to trying to lift you up out of your trauma. It's like, but this person's way more traumatized than you. First of all, it doesn't take away my trauma. It doesn't take away my pain and suffering. And it makes me actually feel worse about myself in certain ways, because it shows me that there's even greater suffering I didn't know about. I didn't know about the guy who lost his legs. I didn't know about the person who lost their mom to COVID. Whatever it is, it, it's, I don't know, it never, 
lifts me up out of the funk that I'm in. It never makes me feel better about my circumstances to hear about people's circumstances that are subjectively worse. So I want to talk about this reverse comparison trap today because I don't think it's talked about enough. And I've just noticed it being a repetitive human response. Again, I don't know what it is. Consolation. Maybe people are so uncomfortable receiving your suffering that they're telling you this because they want to get you out of your suffering so they don't have to deal with it. I actually don't know what the psychological reasons are. And I want to bring it up, Whitney, because I'm curious if, if you notice this, if there are people in your life that you observe doing this when you're struggling or going through a moment, and what we can do about it, because I don't find it useful, personally. I don't find it useful to compare ourselves in the original version of the comparison trap to people that have it better or more prosperous than us, and I certainly don't find myself feeling less depressed, less bad about my life circumstances when I read about the people who have suffered through or risen up over these great horrors. Like, I just don't end up feeling better. So I'm curious if you see this reverse comparison trap in your life and how you feel if and when you're on the receiving end of it. I definitely do. And I, my first reflection on this is that I don't think we're that great collectively. I don't think most people, let me put it that way, have the tools on how to support someone when they're going through a challenging time. I really think that's what it comes down to. We stumble through it in general. And that's just not a skill that many of us have have developed because you have to be very intentional about developing that skill. And I think what we do is we want to help. We want to be supportive. So we just kind of go through like habitual reactions to things. So that is my guess. As somebody who tends to be a fixer, a problem solver, I've really started to notice my reactions to when somebody shares a hard time with me because my tendency is to immediately try to make that person feel better. As I have observed my tendencies as a people pleaser, that is part of it. I feel like it's my responsibility to help somebody. It's my responsibility to help them feel better. If I can try to prevent them from feeling sad or disappointed, it's like a desire for me to fix. And that's a really fascinating thing. And I absolutely think that I have learned just through other interactions and observing other people to do things like you're describing, Jason. At least that's what I used to do. I don't notice myself doing that a ton now, but that's because I'm really working on it and I'm growing my overall awareness. I think for a lot of people, they're not interested in doing all that self-work or they're not at that stage. And so they might even, they probably don't even realize that they're doing it, Jason. And because it's so common, they don't think twice about it. They think, oh, well, this is helping, you know? And unless you speak up on it and let somebody know it's not helpful, it actually might be hurtful, then they may never realize it. And of course, there's also the risk that you speak up on something being hurtful to you and they just think, oh, well, this hurts Jason. Like this is Jason's pain. This isn't actually a big issue. You bringing this up here on the podcast, though, I think it is really relatable because we struggle so much with the comparison trap. And many of us have spent a large part of our life just thinking about how we feel in relation to others. It's really fascinating because I think it's such a, a fine line. I've been thinking about this in terms of what's going on for people of different races, you know, being a white woman 
yesterday, actually, which was Friday, March 19th, 2021, I texted one of my friends who's Asian to check in on her because I've been thinking a lot about her. And for context, a few days previous to that, I think it was the 17th of March, there was the horrific hate crime or the... I don't even know, actually, through my ignorance. I don't really know if it was a hate crime. The media has been incredibly confusing. But in Atlanta, Georgia, I think eight Asian women were killed by a white man. And it was in um, a spa or massage setting. And it's fascinating for me because it's so confusing. And that's actually one thing that's been coming up a lot is that, is it purposefully confusing? Is the media purposefully making it vague? How much of the news do you have to pay attention to in order to learn these things? I mean, I've read articles and watched multiple videos, and I still feel confused about it. But I digress because my point is I'm trying to raise my own awareness about what other people are experiencing and their pain, but not assume that I can relate to it. And I think that's an important thing to bring up because what I'm practicing and kind of experimenting with is checking in on my friends that are people of color, that in this instance, are Asian, and asking them, how can I be supportive? What do you need right now? Instead of assuming. It feels uncomfortable because I don't understand that pain. And I think that's part of this too, Jason, is I think we have a tendency to try to relate to people. And if we can't relate to them, we try to think of another experience that is maybe similar and that they were putting into context. But through my work on being anti-racist, I'm recognizing that I truly cannot relate to somebody who is a different race than me. And I especially can't relate because I have white privilege. So for me to even try to draw comparisons is really disrespectful or out of line or whatever. And so I'm trying to be very careful about it. But at the same time, I'm also not trying to... I think... Truly, everything is relative. And another thing I've reflected on is how many of us have experienced trauma in our lives, if not all of us. Like Life has a lot of trauma within it, but each of us experience different types of trauma. And it's not meant to compare trauma and levels of trauma to one another. It's not a competition. It's not about who has better or worse trauma, but it's acknowledging our traumas and not diffusing them because I think that's this part of it too, Jason. It's like, that is that context of, oh, it's not as bad as I thought. To you, right? Like to you, it doesn't seem so bad. But to me, it feels really painful right now. And that's important to acknowledge because it's not about the comparison with others. It's the relative to our internal state. So if we are suffering, that is relative to times where we are not suffering or we are suffering less. It's not relative to other people who are suffering for their own reasons. And I think that's a really important distinction and something worth really digging into more perspectives on, because I think that's a big issue that we have in our conversations about trauma and suffering and tragedy, is that we immediately start to compare. I think the word diminishing is so wonderful in this context because i believe when we're in this mode of comparison comparing traumas comparing suffering that it diminishes a person's experience on both sides truly if someone makes a statement under the umbrella of 
well, you know, it could be worse, dot, 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 right? Because that's usually the context. You know, it could be worse because insert reasons. It's not only diminishing my experience of my personal trauma and suffering and my processing, right? And whatever healing work I may or may not be doing around what I'm experiencing, but it's diminishing the person, whether they know them or not, their experience of their suffering. Again, whether that person's a different race, gender, color, ethnicity, sexual orientation, whatever that human has been through, it's diminishing my experience and my processing of my suffering and trauma, and it's also diminishing theirs, right? So this context of it could always be worse is not honoring the individual struggle to your point. Because for so many factors, I think, I don't know, I I feel like in some ways I was, this is a tangential thing, but I think it's related, Whitney. Last night, I was thinking about how I sometimes have the urge to post on social media about the things I'm going through that are painful, difficult, traumatic, and I don't do it a lot of times. And here's why. Because I don't believe personally that the public forum is an appropriate place to process those kind of things with strangers or acquaintances. Now, with millennials, Gen Z, probably I think there's maybe more of a precedence to do that. We see a lot of YouTube videos about breakups, about um, loss, about things. And I'm not shaming anyone for making that choice. I personally, though, as I was sitting with my pain last night, was thinking, is it going to help me process and heal the things I'm going through to make these things public? And for me, the answer is no, because I think it's a very private individual journey when we're healing from really deep wounds and really deep pain. Some people might disagree. Maybe they find healing through posting a YouTube video or a TikTok about it. I think especially for influencers and online celebrities, there's almost like this unspoken pressure to showcase all of your life, really, in a lot of cases of, my dog died, I broke up with my girlfriend, I lost this. There's a lot of people who really just, it's kind of like a full open book. Again, I'm not saying that's a wrong choice, It's just a choice I don't want to make when I'm going through something that's deeply painful and traumatic, like a situation that I had this week that I'm, you know, I don't know if we're going to discuss it on the podcast, maybe in a much episode in the, in the future. But I guess my point is that in the court of public opinion, I've noticed that when people do that, there is that kind of response in the comments like, oh, it's not that you'll get over it. You'll bounce back quickly. Don't worry about it. There's another fish in the sea. Like I'll see those comments and it's like, we need to fucking stop doing this shit to each other. We really, really do. And I know that people's intention is probably noble in most cases, as you were saying, Whitney. It's a, it's a conditioned behavior of this is what we say to maybe, again, console someone or try and make a reference that it's not that bad. But my framework, my personal belief is that, to your word, it's diminishing. It doesn't allow a person to have the full experience of navigating their suffering and navigating their trauma, which is a very vulnerable individual experience. And that's why sometimes as an aside, when I see certain courses around healing or certain like group coaching around healing, I don't believe in many cases it's enough to get to the nuance and the deeply personal elements of a person's sadness and trauma and pain. It's too much of a blanket approach in in some cases. And I'm saying all of this because I think it's important for us to increase our mindfulness when we have a friend, a loved one, an acquaintance who is suffering, to not diminish it through these frameworks of language of it's not that bad because blah, blah, blah. 
You'll get over it quick. Don't worry. You'll bounce back soon. All of these are very diminishing language, unconscious languaging, I believe. And so I think I'm bringing this up and we're discussing it because I want to be more mindful with my language as you do, Whitney. And for you, dear listener, I think it's important that we pause before we have an automatic response in these situations and consider the context of what we're saying and whether it's actually going to be helpful to the person that's receiving it. Absolutely. And there's a couple things that I am looking up around how we can move through this. One is that you can look up phrases and start to learn different things that you can say to somebody that are very mindful. For example, um, I typed in how to respond to somebody who, and there was all these different Google queries that came up and a website came up that said, 64 of the best things ever said to a griever. And this is on a website called What's Your Grief, which I will link to this and anything else that we reference on our website, wellevator.com, where you can find a full transcript of our episodes, links to anything we mention, YouTube videos of the episodes, and how to get in touch with us. Our website is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. So I'm not going to go through all 64 of these phrases, but I think it's helpful to learn these things and to practice them. I remember also I came across a book, which I will have to try to find, but I remember it was a really beautifully designed book. It had like, not I keep thinking cartoon, but drawings in it. And I really wanted to learn more about how to talk to somebody who's going through grief because I recognize that it's not easy and I want to be prepared because grief comes up often in life, you know, unexpectedly. And so having some preparation for that time so I can show up and be as supportive as possible, right? So number one on this list of the 64 things to say is there are no words. You know, maybe that's emphasizing that this is really intense and and maybe even admitting like, I don't know what to say or or acknowledging like nothing I'm going to say is going to make you feel better. That's part of this. Your grief reactions are normal and appropriate. That's key too, because I think sometimes through that grief, we start to question like, is this as bad as it feels? I remember when I was going through that, some experiences of this, like I was kind of afraid to talk to other people because I was afraid they wouldn't understand. But if someone were just simply to acknowledge it like that, that would feel really comforting to me. You can ask them to tell you more. Maybe someone just wants to talk. And by saying, tell me more, that's showing that you're interested and that you care. I'm not a huge fan of the phrase, I'm really sorry. I feel like it's really overused. That's also a knee-jerk thing that we say to people, but it feels a bit empty for me personally. That doesn't necessarily mean that it does for others. So remember that not every phrase is going to resonate with other people. And it is kind of the stumbling through a lot of this. So again, there's a lot on this list. I will link to this. You can read all 64 if you would like. And you can also just look up other articles that share similar phrases. I'd also like to talk about a couple of things that I pulled up, Jason, on on this subject matter, which is the theory of relativity when it comes to suffering. I found a article on a website called Willa, which is Affordable Therapy for Everyday People. I like the way that sounds. It's a short article that says that recognizing that others have it worse doesn't necessarily make it better, which I think is part of your point 
here. So the article starts off by saying, someone else always has it worse. Everyone has feelings. Everyone has ups and downs. Yet we often feel that there are people out there suffering more than we are. And therefore, we cannot allow ourselves to feel bad. We struggle when comparing our concerns to the concerns of other people. We often hear ourselves and others say, it could be worse. I should be thankful for what I have. I need to stop feeling so sorry for ourselves, for myself, or get over it. Suffering is relative. While having those thoughts may at times help us gain a healthy perspective on our own circumstances or reality, they may also be a way in which we invalidate our own experiences and suppress our current struggle. Regardless of the objective severity of the problem that we face, we still have our subjective reaction. Then they share a quote from Viktor Frankl, which is often means it's going to be a really wise, <laughs> wise phrase here. A man's suffering is similar to the behavior of gas. If a certain quantity of gas is pumped into an empty chamber, it will fill the chamber completely and evenly, no matter how big the chamber. Thus, suffering completely fills the human soul and conscious mind, no matter whether the suffering is great or little. Therefore, the, quote, size of human suffering is absolutely relative. And for those listeners who are unfamiliar with Viktor Frankl, he wrote a wonderful book called Man's Search for Meaning that has really helped a lot of people understand suffering and traumatic experiences because it was written during the Holocaust and his time in concentration camp. So it's a really intense, meaningful book because he was going through a horrific experience in, in our lives as human beings, but he still found a way to find meaning in that experience. So it really impacted me. The article goes on to say that the reality is that suffering, much like other human experiences, is relative. Our personal ordeal is not to be brushed under the rug because comparatively it's not as painful, stressful, or horrifying. Invalidating our own feelings, minimizing them, and rejecting them can often be harmful to our well-being. It may lead to increased negative feelings, withdrawal, isolation. In other words, denying our suffering only because it doesn't reach some, quote, ideal threshold of adversity or torment can actually create further suffering. And the article, who, by the way, is written by a therapist named Samantha Lieberman, said that you can work through this by accepting your feelings, assessing your needs, and understanding that it's a both and, not an either or, meaning that acknowledging the feelings and thoughts that come with our circumstances does not disqualify us from also having empathy for others dealing with, quote, worse because the two are not mutually exclusive. That's really helpful for me. We can feel our feelings and have compassion for others too. And as a matter of fact, Samantha says, by coming fully in touch with our pain, we're actually likely to be more present to others' journeys. I think that's absolutely valuable, such valuable content you just shared, Whitney. And you know, the the other thing that that comes up for me as as a offshoot of this is when when we feel guilty for quote having it better than other people 
that part of this comparison too is that if we emerge from our suffering and we're in a process of receiving blessings or abundance, I have noticed for myself that I sometimes feel guilty for receiving certain things. Like I don't like there's the not enoughness conversation of I don't deserve it, but then there's the side of am I not able to relate to the suffering of others anymore? It's almost like a fear of if I'm doing too well. God, I remember okay, an example of this. Last summer I was accompanying my mentor Michael to like a, a liquor shop, a wine store in his neighborhood. He wanted to pick up some stuff for his his husband, Kevin. And we were talking to the shop owners about financially and energetically how they were doing during the pandemic. And he mentioned, you know, being a wine and, and liquor store that they were, you know, doing gangbusters and their business was great and they were healthy and everyone was was great. He's like, and you know what? He said, honestly, I feel really guilty about it. And I remember I don't know this guy. I just met him. I said, why do you feel guilty about it? He said, because there are so many people suffering right now. And he felt guilty for them doing so well financially for the business doing, he said they were doing better than they had done the previous year. Probably because drugs and alcohol and other escape mechanisms do really well any time of year, but especially when people are locked at home. And we, we had talked about this in previous episodes of binge drinking and alcoholism increasing during the pandemic. So as an example, he felt guilty. He felt bad for doing so well when others were suffering, like literally on the block that this liquor store is, you know, there are homeless people. And I think that's interesting too, that when we are not suffering per se, or when we are quote, doing well, or we're abundant and healthy and things are well in our lives, that we feel bad about it. And again, I think that's interesting too, because does that help? It goes to the motivation, Whitney, of is that kind of thinking the thing that spurs people to make donations, to feed the homeless, to volunteer with different organizations for people that are, quote, less fortunate? I wonder if under that context, guilt could possibly be a good thing. But I think it's an interesting thing to observe when people say that. Like, I feel bad for doing so well when others aren't. But not just during the pandemic, that could be a reflection any time of year at any moment in history. Since the dawn of human civilization, there's been oppression and classism and systems being rigged to benefit certain people. So, quote, doing well while others are suffering, I mean, we could see that at any point in our lifetime, truly, right? So, psychologically, I find that curious too when people feel bad for having good things happen in their life. And I'm saying it because I notice myself doing it. And I wonder if when I do that, it's actually keeping good things at bay because I feel bad about receiving good things. I wonder if energetically I'm pushing those things away because I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. I, I need to keep suffering so I can relate to people. You know, I'm still trying to figure that out for myself. Well, it leads me to another article I found from the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Reason and Science. And this is a 2014 post from Robert Johnson, who wrote about whether or not there's a scale of suffering. And he starts off by saying, it's an important question in human society. Although the capacity of humans to say to each other, I am suffering, means that in some ways, determining the level of suffering has become secondary. And in many developed nations, we now consider any suffering at all to be unacceptable. So that's really fascinating to think about. Like, we have the privilege, being in a developed nation, to 
try to avoid it. And, you know, that's one of the big themes of this podcast and reasons why it was called This Might Get Uncomfortable is like, why are we so obsessed with, with avoiding discomfort and suffering? You know, I think this is part of it. And for me as a fixer, or the tendency of of wanting to solve things, it's like, I got to fix it. I got to make it better all the time. But like, what I'm trying to learn is that it's okay if things don't get better. It's okay if things are slow. I don't always have to have control. It doesn't always have to be rushed. And sometimes just sitting in something is the best way to get through it. The question, going back to this article, about which kind of suffering is worse is to risk the wrath of many who feel that all suffering should be held, in principle, equally bad. And the question is often dismissed before discussion can really begin. Yet the reality that there are differences in levels of suffering is an important concept, especially when, as this article is touching upon, like the legal system, right? Like it would be really challenging to deal with crime without the understanding that some forms of suffering can be worse than others. So that's a, that's a great point. It's entirely rational to suggest that if suffering exists, then there must be a scale of suffering in some way. Because, for example, the author says, like, pricking your finger on a thorn is generally preferable to being tortured in a POW camp, right? The difficulties arise with the acknowledgement of human subjectivity. Suffering is not a phenomenon that can be precisely measured. While we can devise laws to account for generalities and obvious disparities, we find when we try to look closer that, in fact, it is not possible to create a scale of suffering that can cope with any great degree of specificity. A modest push is not, in all cases, preferable to a violent attack. Psychological factors can influence the suffering experienced. That's a great point, too, right? Because it's very relative to how your brain works. And often the cultural baggage attached to certain acts and events can be the primary source of suffering. Any attempt at a specific scale will run into difficulties arising out of the differences in subjective experience that can, for some people, make the most modest forms of aggressions worse than extremely violent ones, right? So every person is a unique combination of genetic and experiential circumstances, meaning we all experience stimuli differently on a mental level. As suffering is an intensely mental experience, and as mental experience is highly subjective, any attempt to devise a scale of suffering is on shaky rational ground. Each person undoubtedly has a scale of suffering particular to themselves, though even that is likely to change over time in response to experience. We should, and usually do, feel comfortable making obvious and general judgments about extreme forms of suffering relative to the comparatively trivial. Our function as a society depends on this ability. We need to lock away rapists and murderers, but we also recognize that less brutal acts deserve less harsh punishment. However, we should exercise caution when attempting to scale anything that causes significant suffering as we cannot be sure of exactly how it is experienced. The most horrific torture you can imagine is not necessarily the most horrific that someone else can. And that reminds me of when I brought up Viktor Frankl, right? Like, 
I mean, you can look at this man and be like, how did he write this book and find meaning in a concentration camp? Like, we look at that experience and think like that's most horrific things a human being can go through. What that man documents in the book is at times very hard to read. But he did find meaning in it. And so his experience in there was very different from other people's experience in there. And I really love the way that this philosopher, Rob Johnson, articulated this. I'm really grateful to explore this, Jason, because I think it's an important thing. So ultimately, we've discovered through some of these articles that it's not really fair or even possible to put a scale on suffering and that it's not an either or. It's more of an and. That's really, really interesting. And yet we as humans do attempt to quantify it, don't we? I mean, it, there's a to your point with reflecting the article, on a very, I suppose, basic level, when you compare a paper cut to losing an arm, there's almost like an obvious like, well, yeah, there are levels to it. But to your point, the subjectivity of a person's genetics, their psychological health, their life experience, and any trauma that they may have experienced previously, like there can be situations where, as an example, I've had people say that they're terrified of, say, interacting with a dog or a cat because as a child, they got attacked by an animal, right? So there is a subjectivity in this conversation that I think is absolutely core to it in the sense that if I approach a dog and I have no prior history of trauma around that or it's not reminding me of a past experience, my interaction with that present moment is going to be very different than a person who has a history of trauma related to a similar situation, right? So I think this comes down to going back to how do we deal with suffering and trauma in the human experience without diminishing someone's experience? And also to your point, Whitney, of at the beginning of this episode, not being able to fully relate to someone's experience. This is a difficult thing. And I think how I feel received is when a person isn't trying to fix it per se, or when a person isn't trying to assage my feelings by comparing it to someone else, it's almost like there's a real healing and a power to just being witnessed in your suffering, not with someone trying to fix it or take it away or make it better. I think the simple witnessing and being present with another person while they are in their suffering is such a simple and such a powerful act. Sometimes you don't even need to say anything. Sometimes it's better to not say anything and just be with someone. Similarly, I think with our own personal experience of trauma or suffering, not trying to push it away, not trying to diminish it, not trying to talk ourselves out of it, like suck it up. It's not that bad. Keep going, keep going, compartmentalizing it and pushing it down, which at some point in our human experience, we're going to have to deal with it. And this learned behavior of pushing away the pain avoiding the trauma, acting like certain painful situations didn't affect us as much as they did. That's another coping mechanism, right? I think in my experience, at some point, it's going to rear itself and it's going to need to be looked at and dealt with at some point in our lives. So for me, I think one of the most healing acts is when I am in deep pain and deep suffering is just to be witnessed in it without someone trying to offer a solution. Because it's not really about offering a solution. And I think to the original point of this, when people say it's not that bad, or what did you try this, or have you tried this, I feel rushed sometimes. Like you're trying to rush me through my process, or this idea of run through the dark tunnel as fast as you can, get to the light, get to the light, get to the light. But I don't think life works that way. 
And I think with some of the deepest, most painful experiences we have, we can't rush through the tunnel to get to the light at the end of it. It's again that analogy that I've used before of when Ramdas said, you know, the it takes the time that it takes for the snake to shed its skin. And if we try and rip off the band-aid or we try and pick the scab off too quickly, we don't get a chance for the healing experience to take effect. So I think this is just a it's an interesting exploration, Whitney, of how we can support one another. And this might be different. You know, for each one of us, the way that we process and experience trauma and suffering, again, it's individual and subjective. Because I think silent space holding and just having presence when I'm suffering is the most effective thing for me. It might be completely different for you and for the listener. My personal thing is I just want people to like witness me and hold space and shut the fuck up. (laughs) And I'm saying that, you know, like, please just don't say anything. Like, just be here with me and love me in silent, loving space. That's my thing. For each person, it could be completely different. And, you know, I guess I'm curious, is there a way when you're going through something with that you prefer to be, I guess, witnessed or loved in that way? Like, do you have a different version of that? I really like to be heard as well. And I like to feel open to express myself without judgment. And yeah, I think it is tough when somebody starts getting solution oriented. And if they're not really listening, they might pose solutions that don't fit the situation. And one thing that's really tough for me in general, suffering or not, like if I have a question, if I'm trying to work through something and I genuinely am looking for advice, it's really frustrating for me when somebody doesn't check in to see where I'm at first. Like it doesn't seem like they are aware of what I've tried. That's frustrating because I'm somebody who tries a lot of things before I get help from someone. And I, it's so irritating when like somebody gives you a solution. You're like, yeah, I've already tried that. It doesn't work. So I think it's helpful to get some more context and, and ask somebody, what do you need? Once they tell you, if they're asking for solutions, can you walk through it together? And this is helpful for me too in my coaching and, and something I'm working on is like really checking in with someone as you're giving them a perspective or advice to make sure that that's actually working for them. Because it's very frustrating if someone sits there and listens to you spout off some things and at the end you're like, thanks, but that that's not what I needed. That didn't help. Like It feels really frustrating. And I like it when people are willing to accept that their opinion might not apply. You know, their opinion might not be what I need. It might not be the right fit and that's okay. Sometimes as a people pleaser, I feel like I have to really acknowledge somebody else <laughs> in terms of like they're giving me advice and I feel like I have to like please them. Like, oh yeah, that worked for me. We're really deep down it didn't. It's complicated. And I I think this is part of the reason that many of us will will isolate ourselves is because we're very afraid that our needs won't be met. So I think one of the best things that we can do is ask somebody, what do you need? And if they don't know, you can then ask them, are you willing to explore together and find out what you need? Or do you want to just sit in that unknown? You don't have to like keep trying everything to see if it works. Like maybe the answer hasn't come to you yet and you can let that person know, hey, I'm there for you when you have figured it out. Like, let me know. 
I was thinking about that too, going back to my Asian friend who I had reached out to. Like I didn't actually hear back from her. And I I had this tendency of like, I, I want to check in. I want to make sure she's okay. I'm concerned about her. But I, I stepped back and realized like that's in a way a little bit selfish because she might be going through a lot of pain. I mean, that's what I have felt from the Asian community this week is that this is incredibly painful for them and I'm terrifying. And being an empathetic person, it really makes me emotional, like seeing other people go through all that fear and that internal suffering because it's it's horrific. It's horrific to see a community that you're part of go through that type of trauma. And it's still very raw. I think it's also interesting how like Asian people are lumped into black people and it's like all, hey, you're not white. You must all be experiencing the same thing. Or they get left out. It's like, oh, well, you're Asian. You're not black. It's different. And it's like, I remember so distinctly hearing from my Asian friend, anybody of color, really, anyone who's not white, like they were really struggling and have been struggling. But when Black Lives Matter was really, really fresh and raw in in, uh, mid-2020, that's what I was hearing from anyone of color, anyone who wasn't white, is that it was really rough. And it's humbling for me. And that's where I've just learned to ask, like, what do you need? And do more listening and less talking because I don't know what they need. Every individual is going to be different. And I can't assume that I can understand or relate to what they're going through. And I'm I'm grateful for it. I think I've talked about this before. If you, the listener, are looking for more resources, my favorite resource right now is Anti-Racism Daily. It's a newsletter you can sign up for for free. You can support the author, Nicole. She actually just came out with a book on mindfulness, I believe. It's, uh, I have to find the cover, but it's she incorporate, she's helping children become more mindful and take good care of themselves and really targeting children of color. And she's just doing phenomenal work. I think her last name is pronounced Gar- Cardoza, Nicole Cardoza. I will link to her. That resource helps me. Every single day I read her newsletter and I look at the resources. She often shares petitions. She shares places that you can donate. She shares really thoughtful articles. She brings in speakers of all colors, including white people, that share their what they're learning, their experiences, their knowledge. And it's really helped me during this time where I'm trying to learn more about what Asian Americans and Asian people in general are experiencing. And I'm very grateful. And it's also been incredibly humbling. So I want to encourage everyone to pay attention to things like that. And of course, racism is not our only issue. It's not the only source of suffering. There's a lot of things going on, but that's certainly a place where we can begin and a place where we can learn a lot because developing compassion and awareness is the beginning point for most of these things. And it's, it's opened my eyes to different types of suffering and not, not to the point where I'm turning away from it. It's hard to learn about other people's suffering. But if we don't learn about it, as we know, Jason and I have talked a lot about like our journeys as vegans, there's some correlations. It's easy to turn your eyes away from what's going on with animals, but it's that journey of learning and witnessing, as you were saying, Jason, and being committed to being part of a change 
It's something that I'm very committed to. So I will link to that in in the show notes for anyone that wants to learn more about how to be anti-racist and support others. And uh, yeah, that's it. Well, there's a lot of food for thought. And we, as always, are very curious how you are receiving and interpreting and feeling through the things that we bring to the podcast here, dear listener. So if you have any reflections, thoughts, musings, personal stories around the reverse comparison trap or the nature of your own personal suffering or how you are navigating your responses to whatever trauma you might have experienced, we're always an open book. And we always love to hear from you through email. And our email is hello at wellevator.com. That's also our website, as Whitney mentioned. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. You can email us at that hello at wellevator.com address and share your thoughts on suffering, healing, trauma, the difficult conversations, or any new solutions or ideas you might have for how we can better support one another, even if we don't have a direct experience or a direct connection to another person's suffering. We're very, very curious to hear what your thoughts and ideas or solutions might be on how we can relate to one another on this level. And that being said, we also, as Whitney mentioned, have our transcript with everything that we mentioned, all the articles and books we mentioned in this episode at wellevator.com. And you can follow us on all of the social media platforms. Our handle is at wellevator, and we'll link to all of those platforms in the show notes. So until next time, if you are going through something right now, which it's most likely if you are a human being on this planet, you are going through something (laughs) difficult, challenging, stressful, traumatic. Our hearts go out to you. We hope this episode resonates with you. And thank you for your support and your listenership here on This Might Get Uncomfortable. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.